2009. Our message this morning is called Ayin Tova. Ayin Tova is the Hebrew way to say a good eye or an eye that is good. Those of you that read the King James Bible might recognize that phrase. It appears in the book of Matthew. We will get there later and I will be teaching out of the NIV because with all of my learning I'm still unable to understand the King James Bible. I'm thankful for those of you that can. It's beautiful. It sounds like poetry. But I'm tired of looking up words and finding out that the NIV seems to have translated it in a way that I understand it, or the New American Standard does. Uh, my goal is not to offend you about your translation, but if that offends you, you're going to be offended about a great many other things in my life. So, By the way, I was admonished uh, here recently about the way that I dress as a pastor. Um, this shirt uh, is my sister's fault. She she gave it to me for my birthday. Uh, it says, "Help! I'm preaching and I cannot shut up." For some reason, she thought it was very apropos. I, I don't know what it is that she's trying to tell me. Uh, Saints, our church makes every effort to disregard the superficial. We're not interested in your aesthetic. Uh, appeals to mankind. We are asking people to look beyond just what you see, which is humble, ordinary people, and take note. We've been with Jesus. We're not appealing to you on the basis of commendations hanging on our wall in pretty frames with seals. We're appealing to you on the basis of God's Word and His moving in our lives. So if somebody does not come to our church or will not stay in our church because they do not like the pastor's t-shirt, you know, I'm not going to lose very much sleep over that. Uh, and the truth is, if I dressed in a way that made you uh, like me, you wouldn't like the rest of me anyway. I mean, I'd like to tell people, if you don't like me, you just don't know me. But the truth is, there are some that the better they get to know me, the less they like me. And that's all right. <laughs> that is all right with me. I just want to earn the favor of the Father. Amen. You understand? Yeah. The two are not always mutually exclusive, and I'm glad. I, I like uh, to have good friends, good brothers, and earn the favor of the Father. But wherever they are mutually exclusive, I'm going to choose the Father. Amen? So our message this morning, I wanted to tell you some of this birth out of a book. Uh, in 1862, a French novelist named Victor Hugo wrote one of the more famous books that, uh, well, that the 19th century knew anyway. It's called Les Miserables. When you look at this title, it just is a French way to say the miserables. <laughs> but the French don't refer to a class of people as miserable for no reason. The title infers something that is missed in the translation. You find that with translations sometimes. When speaking about people who are miserable, what they mean is somebody who is wretchedly poor. When you have a chance to look at this book, or if you like maybe some of the more modern movies, I know Liam Nielsen and uh, several other famous actors did a movie somewhere in the 90s about this that was just unbelievable. There is a picture and a story of Jesus in it that cannot be missed. Uh, similar to the book Count of Monte Cristo. Anybody read that one? Or seen the movie? Yeah, some have seen the movie. It's hard to read these books, to see these movies, without seeing something of the heart of God in them. And I thought I would reflect with you for a moment on that, the pertinent piece of the synopsis that you need to know about Les Miserables. Jean Valjean is a man that this story centers around. 
and he was hungry, but more than he was hungry, his sister and their five kids were hungry. And so he is walking past a window of a wealthy person's house, and there is food sitting in the window seal. Could that be tempting if not only were you starving, but the people around you were starving? You're watching your sister's children, your nieces, starving? So he stole it, and he got caught. And they put him in jail for five years for this. Not wanting to remain in jail, mostly out of his concern for the people that were perishing without his support, he attempted to escape. So they gave him another 14 years. The letter of the law said, you steal, you go to jail. You try to escape, we extend your sentence. The question is, did the spirit of the law ever intend such cruelty, such harsh treatment for someone? Jean Valjean comes out of prison and he is an angry and bitter man because 19 years of his life have been stolen from him. He's given a yellow passbook that he must present to the authorities in every town that he goes to and this yellow passbook marks him kind of like a scarlet letter. It says, this man is a criminal and is not to be trusted. He's paid his debt to society, but society is not done with him yet. So when he applies for a job, he's a criminal and they don't hire him. When he goes to the inn and looks for a place to stay, who wants to be housed next to a criminal? The law has found this man guilty and he was a criminal. So he finds a bishop, a bishop named Myro. And the bishop allows him to come stay in the house. And uh, Bishop Myro is awakened in the middle of the night. There's a rustle. He awakens to see Jean Valjean stealing his stuff. And when he goes to speak with Jean Valjean, Jean beats him and leaves him knocked out on the floor. So the bishop is explaining to his wife the next morning while Jean Valjean is gone what has happened. And she thinks that he's too kind, he's too merciful. And he's explaining to her mercy and kindness are the heart of God. When an inspector brings Jean Valjean back to the house and says, I caught this man with the articles of furniture from your house. The bishop thinks for a second, looks in Jean Valjean's eyes and says, he didn't steal those things. I gave them to him. He says, hold on, my son. You left something else in the house. And he went and got 30 pieces of silver put them in a bag, gave them to Jean Valjean and said, Today I purchase you for the Lord, my son. Go forward and live an honorable life. You ever knew what it was to be guilty in everyone's eyes and have someone show you mercy? It is a life-changing event. The story progresses so that the inspector, a guy named Javert, happens to be in the same town that Jean Valjean has relocated to under a new name. When the change in his life occurred, he took on a new identity. He had become wealthy because God seems to bless in many ways those who have their eye on what God has his eye on. And Jean Valjean was taking care of prostitutes and their children. He was taking care of the poor in his town. And Javert kept thinking, I know this man from somewhere. And the entire time was following him with the law on his side to point to say, this man is guilty, this man is wrong in this area. But everything that Jean Valjean was involved in was something that was morally correct, something that was honorable. Years later, 
the climax of the story is that Javert is standing before Jean Valjean, having recognized who he is and that he's indeed a criminal and not the man that everyone says that he is. And that he had saved the inspector's life on two prior occasions. This puts him in a moral dilemma. To do what is right and show mercy to this man means that he must break the law that he has lived by all of his life. And he ends up committing suicide. As I thought about this this morning and as I began to contemplate on this, I couldn't help but think that there is a spirit that rolls through our churches that doesn't do anything but find fault. And does it in the name of religion. Well, do you know what's wrong with that man? <laughs> he doesn't believe this. He doesn't do this. Do you know what's wrong in their lives? They don't get along because of this. Always finding fault and yet somehow missing the higher moral imperative. Why were those laws created that Javert was fighting so ardently for? They were created to protect people, to encourage people, to take up the cause of justice, to liberate the oppressed. And they were being used by somebody with a narrow sense of legalistic righteousness to actually oppress someone. As I thought about this, my mind drifted to Romans 10, so this is where our message begins today. You will want to go to the 10th chapter of Romans. We're going to start in the first verse. Some of these points have a higher theological significance that if you get, great. If you are just not that interested in that kind of thing, I promise this message will have the rubber meet the road in your life at some point in it. So please don't tune me out. In Romans 10... Paul is writing and he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. Is Paul talking about a group of people he doesn't know? No, he's talking about the church of his day. He's talking about members of his own race. But their zeal is not based on knowledge. How can you say that about somebody that received the embodiment of the law? They were misapplying it. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Before we read that next line, I want you to understand that it is possible to hear the right things in church every week. It is possible to get the letter of an instruction correct and completely miss the intent. For instance, the book of Levit Leviticus tells you to put a fence around your roof. This is not because God likes a particular kind of architecture. If He did, I don't think it would be those medieval Roman buildings with gargoyles on them, though. But they put a cross, so I guess that makes it all alright. So, it's not because God cares about a fence on a roof. The intent of that law is so that it would be safe. So that nobody would fall off of a roof and harm themselves. Could you put a fence on your roof and care less about whether your neighbor falls off? Sure. This is an example of being obedient to the letter of a law and not caring at all about its intentions in dealing with your heart. Israel did this in large part. And it's not just Israel's sin alone. The whole church world does this. One of my first experiences with a preacher was a man that I worked with who explained to me that it was wrong to stop and help somebody broken down on the side of the road on the way to church because it was the devil trying to keep you from going to church. Does that strike you as wrong in some way? 
Immediately I thought about an oxen and a ditch. But the man was very convinced and pure in his heart, in his reasoning. It is very possible to hear the right things over and over and over and think that you're saved by hearing them. And there is no godly application in our lives. Our hope is to remedy this. Look at this next verse. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. The way that I was taught to read this and the way that most people read it is end as in cessation. This is the point at which that legal code stops. This is the point at which the law no longer applies. That is not the intent of this verse at all. Telos is the word translated end there. The only other place in all of the New Testament that is translated is John 13.1. And in John 13, 1, says, To show them the full extent of His love, He washed their feet. The words full extent are talos. When you want to see the way in which God's divine moral imperatives are carried out to their fullest extent, Jesus is their talos. Jesus is the walking embodiment of what God desires of a human being. The very thing that the law was pointing at the place at which the law arrives, its end point. That's why it was translated this way. Well, if it is possible to look at something, to hear something, and miss the point, God gave us a living, breathing, active example for us to look at. I want you to read with me James. Let's, let's read this as just as blatantly as James says it. Go to the book of James. Tell me when you're there. That brother is fast, didn't he? He's got one of those new Bibles with a five-speed transmission in it. We're going to be in the first chapter of James. I lied. We're going to be in the second chapter of James. I rarely lie when I preach, but it is a good idea to follow along. In the second chapter of James, I want you to hear these words. It starts in uh, verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In our Les Miserables example, the end of the story, the point is, not only had Jean Valjean become a lawbreaker and then had a change in his life, but the inspector who so closely held to the law all of his life had also broken the law. So there was nobody in the entire story that could be held guiltless from a legalistic standpoint. But the point of those laws was to do good to man, to bring freedom. Our Bible is not much different. One aspect of the law that you see is that no man can keep it perfectly except Jesus. But the point was not to put a shackle around your neck, not to weigh you down with guilt to the point where you couldn't function. The point of the law was to change the inclination of our hearts to do what was good and right and proper. Why do we have a law that says do not murder in America? Why do we have a law that says don't drive more than 35? Although some laws seem more important than others. Why do we have laws that say those things? Because we don't want to hurt people. We want to do things that are good. You can read the Word and realize that we are all guilty. But the point of this law was to create in us a freedom to do what is good. When you give people boundaries, when you give them budgets, when you give them things that show them what they should be doing, then we have a chance to with freedom know that we're acting within our divine imperative. This was God's intent. 
Have you ever heard that the Word of God is a sword? If it is a sword, if, which I agree that it is, what would we be doing poking each other with the sword all of the time? Don't you know that the Word says? Don't you know that the Word says? You're not doing that right, Casey and Michelle. You're sure not doing that right. And Jan and, and Gary, do you know about... Where did the church get off into this? The point of the Word of God was to show us what to do. And yet we found a way to define Christians by what we don't do. How many times have you discerned that someone must not be a Christian because you saw them with a beer? That person must not be a Christian because that movie was PG-13. <laughs> can't be a Christian, right? You would be shocked if you followed around Jesus in His daily life. He can't be a Christian. He's sitting with whores. He can't be a Christian. That is His fourth cup of wine on Passover. <laughs> it's a six hour meal relax <laughs> that Jesus he can't be religious did you see what he did at Cana he brought out the best one the best one not the cheap stuff the very best how many religious rules did Jesus break in his day do you see the clash between he and those who were abusing his culture is it more important to wash your hands or is it more important to have a right heart before God? Well, ideally, my mother would tell you that you do both. Right? <laughs> In James 1, I want you to hear the heart of the Scripture, and then we'll talk about where James gets this from. Y'all still with me? Yes. We're going to do all right today? Yes. I'm not going to get stoned? Nobody's going to throw anything? I meant stoned like with rocks. <laughs> Because Christians really don't do some things. Y'all ready? Yes. We're going to be in uh, James 1 starting in the 22nd verse. Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Wouldn't you think it would always be a good idea to listen to the Word? Always, 100% of the time, good idea to listen to the Word? Yes. Could you believe that you could hear something so much that it no longer makes an impact on you? Yes. You're yes. kind of inoculated from it? Yes. How many kids grow up in church and their hearts are pricked when they're little? I mean, tears to their eyes. They want to serve Jesus. But you just get dull to hearing the same thing over and over and over and your heart begins to drift. But when you look at them and you say, young man, are you born again? They learn to quote the right scriptures, don't they? And is it our kids only that deceive themselves in this way? Or can it be adults too? See, because I was certainly one of those. I was certainly one of those professing with my mouth but there were no actions, no fruit on part of my tree. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself, goes away immediately and forgets what he looked like. This verse kind of has a different meaning to us because it mentions man and mirror. So I think of standing there shaving or something. But to the context that it speaks, to the people in the original audience, this was a mirror outside the temple in a bronze laver. And what would happen is you would bring a sinless guilt offering. Something that's pure, sweet, innocent. You would have its neck cut, blood thrown in your face as an offering for the guilt that you knew that you had. Then you would go stare into this bronze laver that was polished on the bottom like a mirror and you would see what you looked like. And with that deep sense of knowing that you had missed the mark, 
then you would be washed with the water of God's Word. And you would go forth to live a new life. And this hearing the Word and not doing what it said would be like forgetting what you look like in that labor. Missing the point of the Word. I began to think, where did James get such an idea as this? And I kept reading. He said, but the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Pure and faultless religion is taking care of people that others don't care about. Jean Valjean was on to something in Les Miserables when he began to acquire the ability to do something about the circumstances around him, he cared very little for his own welfare. And he took care of people that could not take care of themselves. This is pure and faultless religion. That word faultless ought to make an impression on you. Has anybody in here ever watched tennis? When you hit a ball out, it's a fault. Now my mother knows nothing of this because she's been a tennis player a long time. So she doesn't hear those words. But when I play with her and I serve and it does not go in, she says, fault. If you want to have a walk with God that never misses the mark, we have to care more about what happens to other people than ourselves. There is nothing that is more unnatural than this. You know what we naturally gravitate towards? Rule keeping. We most naturally gravitate towards doing the religious things but missing their point. Well, I went to church today. I read my Bible today. I prayed today. Great, and what did all of those things teach you if you want to kill the guy that cut in front of you at Luby's? What did they teach you? Because the point of all of these things was to give us a deep awareness of our own flaws so that as God washed us and empowered us to do something about it, we wanted to help other people. Church was never supposed to be about us. It was never supposed to be a blasphemy club. It was never supposed to be a get-rich-quick scheme. I cannot promise you gold dust would be in here or feathers of angels, or any other ridiculous fad that floats through the church. I don't care how many times you shout, money cometh, it may never come. It may not be God's will for your life, regardless of what the preachers tell you. I can promise you, though, you will never miss the mark if you love Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor more than yourself. How does the law and the prophets hinge on such a thing? Because every intent of every law was to get you to love God more and your neighbor more than yourself. And why do we need to love our neighbors more than ourselves? Because this is a walking billboard and advertisement for how God is. You know why there's not a more sincere, genuine move towards Christianity in America? 
there aren't very many sincere, genuine Christians in America. Everybody wears the title. Everybody hears all of the words, but nobody sees the walking, genuine advertisement for God's nature. We wear bracelets that say, what would Jesus do? The book tells us what Jesus would do. As I began to think about that, what kind of things did Jesus do? Well, he fed poor people, sometimes 5,000 at a time. He opened blind eyes. He fought for those that had no power of their own. And who did that upset? The religious people. It's no different. It is no different now. If you're all very comfortable in the chairs that you're in now, and next week when you come in, we ask you to move, sit on the floor, and we put homeless people in your chairs. Part of you thinks it's great, and another part of you is mad you had to sit on the floor and maybe not so happy about the way those people smell. And is our church really going to take this kind of turn? I mean, do you see the way that woman's dressed? My kids see that. Really? Do you care more about them or more about you? My father taught a Sunday school class one time and he got a man to come in dressed very poorly who stank, right? He got someone to come in and play that role. And we don't have to tell you what kind of church this was. You could put any title on it that you want. You know, they went 45 minutes before a single person introduced themselves to this person. 45 minutes. They went almost the entire meeting before anybody touched that person. You tell me, is that Jesus? Somebody smells like cigarettes and, and urine. And you think Jesus would not touch him? What did you smell like when he touched you? Friends, we were all spiritual lepers. It should have been, been against the law just to associate with us. So while I really wasn't that bad, that's okay, I understand. You're not saved yet. <laughs> if you did not get that revelation, you stand here today deceived. Why don't we go ahead and go to Isaiah? Because if we get in Isaiah, it will elevate my thinking. Is that good? Right? Let's go to Isaiah. You know, Pastor, you wear ugly clothes and you preach ugly messages. Fertilizer is sometimes ugly, but it produces beautiful fruit. People gravitate towards religious observance while missing the point. What God wants is a selfless concern for justice, for the oppressed, for orphans, and for widows. A selfless concern. This is why Yeshua, when He's teaching, teaches things like, don't throw a banquet for people that can repay it. Throw a banquet and invite those that cannot do this. Because that is an indication of something that is selfless. But if you invite somebody over for steak and lobster knowing that they will do this for you the next weekend, your motives suddenly come into question. And we're not as good at examining our motives as God is at examining them. He told Solomon that he examined the thoughts, or the motives behind the thoughts of Solomon's heart. Solomon was very wise, but he didn't know what was in his own heart because he was led astray by the very things that he wanted to the point where he sacrificed human beings in the temple of God. That's crazy, isn't it? You ever murdered somebody's reputation? That's crazy too. You ever slandered a pastor after church? Sometimes more pastors get eaten after a Sunday service than fried chicken. <laughs> you ready for Isaiah? Yes, I think we better. So Isaiah starting in the 10th verse. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. You know what's particularly interesting about this? 
Sodom and Gomorrah, right? We were in Isaiah 1. We just started in the 10th verse. I knew that my wife had that memorized, but for the rest of you, my wife's back there going, what verse? What verse? You know what's interesting about addressing the people of Israel as Sodom and Gomorrah? This is written in 740 B.C. Sodom and Gomorrah haven't existed since about 2000 B.C. God destroyed them during the time of the patriarchs. So what is he saying when he calls them rulers of Sodom and Gomorrah? He's trying to call them ugly names. God is. God is calling them something that is denigrating. Well, it must be because they quit reading his word. It must be because they had quit doing the things that were prescribed by the law, right? Well, let's see. Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? Couldn't you respond to the thing that you asked me to do, Lord? I mean, it says sacrifice this on this day and this on this day, and if I do this... I mean, truthfully, I looked at this one time and thought... I probably wouldn't be in the camp very many days of the month. I would always be sacrificing and going for cleansing. I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Wait, wait, excuse me. Mr. God, why did you tell me to do these things then? If you have no pleasure in them, if you have enough of them, if this is not something you want... Why did you write in your word that we're damned if we don't and excommunicated from Israel? When you come to appear before me, who, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Well, God, you did, just like everything else. You asked me to appear before you in the courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. It is possible to bring an offering before... Can you stand in praise and worship and sing songs and it be meaningless? Well, sure. I did it for years and years. Occasionally, I do it now. God has to correct my heart. It's just one more thing in a list of things you have to do that day. Is that what He wants? Does He want you to sing the song? Or is He looking for something to happen inside of you? Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. A convocation is a holy assembly that the Lord Himself commanded them to do. And He says they're detestable. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feast. My soul hates. Soul is a euphemism for his mind, will, and emotions. It's funny. Some people say we're ascribing to God human characteristics, like we're personifying him. No. You're made in his image. You have God's characteristics. And he gets mad. He gets happy. He occasionally, in the word, very few times, changes his mind. God is somebody who moves. He's somebody who yearns. His soul yearns for certain things, the Word says. He was, had filled his heart with pain during the days of Noah. We tend not to think of God that way. It's more comfortable for us to think of Him as the omnipotent, uh, omnipresent genie in the sky. Without feeling or emotion, just do this, don't do this. I know what's going to happen before you do it. So you're all relieved of any responsibility to do anything. Listen, he told these people to do certain things. For 1,600 years, they began repeating them. And now he's telling them that his soul hates it. 
They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. This is a pretty indicting message, isn't it? Well, what the world has done and the worldly church has done said, see, those Jews were evil, right? Because nothing like this could apply to God's real people. We are God's real people. They are the bad ones. This theory is known as replacement theology and it comes from the pits of hell. And the biggest detriment that it does to you is it makes you miss the point. They're not any more wicked than we are. They are doing all of the right things, seemingly. The letter of the law and they are missing its point. Well, what are they missing? Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. God is invested in, has a preferential option for those that cannot defend themselves. And He wants His people to be His hands and feet. He cares when a little boy does not have a daddy. He cares when a little girl does not have enough food. He cares when a widow is caring for children and is left with very few options to make a living. Our God cares. So well, if He cares, why hasn't He done anything about it? Well, He was supposed to have purchased you. He was supposed to have bought you as His servants to be His hands and feet. The question is not, God, why have you forsaken these people? The question is, church! Why have we forsaken them? There is no such thing as a God-forsaken land. There are many lands in which we could say they are church-forsaken. And many times they're populated with churches. You can find real need right here in the United States. You can find real need just south of our border. You can find real need in your neighborhood. But you have to be willing to not just fill a seat. Not just say, what's the minimum to get me saved? Are you saying I'm not saved? I don't care if you're saved if you're not doing anything with it. What would be the point? I'm a little depressed. I've got to spend an eternity with you if you are saved. <laughs> Lord, could we create a second class for them? No, they tried that in Romanism. It doesn't work. There is no purgatory. Or any other doctrine that punishes a bad church while the good church flies away. Right after saying, defend this cause. Listen to what he says. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Then they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. It is on the heels of saying, you are fulfilling the religious letter without hitting its real heart taking care of the oppressed, liberating people, setting people free, feeding them, that he says, look, come reason with me. What I really want is to wash you, to make you clean, so that you can go do these things. God is not invested in your damnation. He's pretty darn heavily invested in your salvation, though. Amen. Not to deliver you to some celestial kingdom, to change the world as we know it. The Jews call this takan ha-olam. It means to repair the world. Our artists sing about it, even the lost ones. John Lennon sang a song called Imagine, where he's doing his best through corrupted eyes to describe a millennial reign. 
the righteous brothers who were not calling themselves righteous because of Christ, but because in the day they said, those dudes are righteous, sang songs that sound like the millennial reign. This is the heart and the cry of human beings. Something's wrong in the world and it needs to be fixed. But the question is, who will fix it? How about the song, we're waiting on the world to change? Stop waiting. Stop waiting. Therein lies the problem. We're always sitting on our salvation waiting. When will we have eaten enough before we feed someone else? When will we have bought enough Xbox 360's cars and everything else that we want before we do something for someone else? Well, Pastor, I do it. I do it. See, I give my tithe. Well, that is a start. That's your most basic area of trust before God. And now when you give that to the church, we have the awesome burden responsibility to say, how do we best use it? But you study the Word, and you will find out there are offerings that involve your entire life. God does not want your checkbook. He wants your life. So easy sometimes to write a check. Other times it's the hardest thing you'll ever do. I'll tell you the truth. It's been easier for me to give away $5,000 than it has been five. Because when it was five, it was usually my last five. Whatever it is, God wants us to care of, about others more than ourselves. Isaiah 57 is a great place to turn, so I think we ought to do that. There. If you're beginning to contemplate the meaning of my shirt, it will soon become clearer <laughs> and clearer and clearer. Church, I am proud of you. I don't mean to act as if you don't know these things. But like Peter said, when we possess these things in increasing measure, they keep us from being unproductive and idle in our faith. And the truth is, it is easy, most natural for us to get into a rut. To do what we've always done and nothing more. To say, I'm okay, you're okay, let's just make a treaty with each other not to spur one another on in the faith. But if you want to be pure and faultless, you surround yourselves with people whose words are loving to you but piercing whose life constantly challenges you to do more, to go further, to be more than you are today. How, how many times do you teach a kid to quote something like, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me? Oh, it's wonderful to teach them to quote it, right? What would happen if they saw mommy and daddy doing all things through Christ Jesus who strengthened them? And not only what mommy and daddy found most palatable, not only what mommy and daddy found easiest, we also like to quote scriptures that say, train a child in the way it will go, and he's old, he won't depart from it. You show me a departed child, and I will show you a failed parent. God, that's harsh, isn't it? <coughs> but I'm the father of three children. I'm the father of three children, and it frightens me to death. Say, so, well, I raised him in the church. Apparently, that's not enough. Israel was being obedient to the letter of the word, but they were missing it. Inasmuch as these people draw near to me with their... Mouths, their hearts are far from me, he said. Why are preachers' kids always the worst? Because your preachers are horrible. That's why. How can you say that? How can you say that? Because you know a tree by its fruit. And if your own children are not your fruit, what is? It's good and it's true and it's frightening, isn't it? Because there's a little human being that you don't have control over their will. You're not supposed to manipulate them, right? They're supposed to follow you as you follow Jesus. We better be good examples. And is that true for children only, I wonder? The defining moment in my life was when a young man named Austin Saunders looked at me and said, Why are you wearing that? 
wearing a pink sock tie. And that's not what was offensive, although today that was pretty offensive, a sock tie. And it had an I Love Jesus tie tack on it. I didn't, he didn't know it. Back in those days, I spent a lot of time in a weight room, and I did my very best to take my deepest breath, to stand there stoically. And inwardly, I was crumbling. Because I realized there is nobody in my life that thinks that the profession of my mouth is true in my heart. I deceived myself by hearing the word. There was no fruit upon the tree. And I became, came to a strategic inflection point. This is the valley of Jehoshaphat. It is a chance when confronted with the actual mirror. What do I do? My purpose that day that if the Lord would change me, if he would help me, I would do whatever he said to do, no matter how stupid, no matter how crazy it seemed, no matter what it cost me. And I found life for the first time. Church wouldn't be worried about how to get rich if we were rich in our deeds. The church would not be chasing every fad that came through Christianity if we had our eyes on what God has his eyes on. Are you in Isaiah 57? Yes. And yes. Isaiah 57, starting the 14th verse, And it will be said... Build up, build up, prepare the road. Remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. For this is what the high and the lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Lord, why would you do that? To revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Our God's eyes range the earth looking for anyone whose heart is fully committed to Him that He might provide them strength. Well, what happens then if there's a little boy in Mexico praying for strength, praying for food, praying for help, and God's people don't go? He charges God with that blame. How many times have you heard somebody say, where was God when this, that, and the other happened? How many times have you heard something like that? Have you ever said it? I have. Where was God? Well, He was residing in His people who were sitting on their butts. Who were sitting in their chairs. See, when the people of God stand by idly, God's name was blasphemed even among the Gentiles. Or did you think that that only applied to the Jews, that scripture? Isn't it neat how we give them everything we don't want and we keep all of the blessings for ourselves? wonder whose theologians work something out like that. A guy named Kittle wrote one of the largest, most exhaustive commentaries that you can buy. It's one of the more expensive, the more world-renowned. He was hired by the party of the Nazis and wrote it during World War II. And churches loved it. We love it. We don't even realize and have no idea that it's anti-Semitic because we don't read enough of our own word to know. He just sounds so smart and so well-educated. He's reading from the Bible. I'm sure he's right. That's a dangerous practice. You ever open your Bible just to see what it'd say? Scripture roulette? Yeah. What do you do with what you do, do quickly? Jesus wept. Judas hung himself. Go outside the camp. Dig a hole. What do you do with those scriptures? This word was meant to be interpreted by God's Spirit living in us, showing us the intent. Every law that was ever given was given for an intent to change the inclination of our heart to do good. In Isaiah 58, you can turn a page. I had intended to read this whole thing to you, but I'm not going to. 
I want you to read it. I want to tell you, though, that Isaiah 58 says, basically, you don't answer us when we pray, Lord. You don't do anything when we fast. And we're fasting to humble ourselves. We're fasting to lower ourselves in our own eyes. And God said, you want your fast to be answered? You want me to break forth like the dawn? You want my light to shine on your face? When you fast, fast to loosen the yoke of the oppressed. Fast, save the food and give it to the hungry. He said, when you fast, you're fasting with selfish purposes that God might move in your life. He said, fast for the benefit of other people. This is a fast that our God can honor. That's amazing. They're actually told that the religious things they're doing to humble themselves is not enough and it's not the right thing. They need to be doing something for someone else's benefit. How many days in our What Would Jesus Do bracelet wearing uh, lives? How many days did Jesus just take a personal day? How many days did he just hang out to get some more sleep? You think he didn't need it? I can show you where he prayed all night, walked all day, and worked all day the next day. I can show you where because of his rigorous physical life his disciples said he was tired and yet ended up ministering all day and what was the ministry well the ministering was standing in a clerical color blessing my son right no it was making food for people it was seeing people healed it was teaching it was casting out demons it was all kind of things it all sounds so super spiritual until you're actually there walking 60 miles in a day God needs people to be his hands and feet who brought Israel out of Egypt? God did, right? Or did Moses? That's right. God worked through Moses. Who split the Red Sea? God did, right? Well, then why did he have Moses stretch out his hands over the water? See, when God does something on the earth, he does it through human beings. God is not letting anyone down. But we often are. I want my eyes on what God's eyes are on. Turn with me to the book of John. Y'all always get excited when we go to the New Testament. Anybody ever bought detergent that said old and unimproved on it? <laughs> no? You ever gone to a computer store and said, I want whatever's outdated? <laughs> I mean, cheapest, most antiquated system you can find, right? Do you think we may have done some harm to ourselves by calling the Older Testament the Old Testament? Mm -hmm. Like we have a new and improved version? Friends, it's one book. All of the prophets pointed to one scenario. The intent, the goal at which the law would arrive at. Yeshua, the Hamashiach. Jesus, the Messiah. And Jesus lived it out in a perfect way. And how was that expressed? Look at John 10. In John 10, we start with the 30th verse. I and the Father are one. If you've been in endless debates with folks from various uh, denominational backgrounds about this, this I and the Father are one was not spoken in Greek. I'm sorry that people insist on that. These were Hebrew people speaking. And they were speaking to one another about a religious event. And the context of their conversation is religious. And Hebrews speak Hebrew when they pray and when they read the Hebrew scriptures. 
So this word means the Father and I are Ichad. Ichad is Hebrew for one. It means single in purpose. It speaks of a plural entity acting as one unit. And watch what he goes on. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said, you are gods? Could that scripture be misquoted? Sure it could. Has anybody in here read Psalm 82? Psalm 82 says God presides over the assembly of gods. He said, well, what does that mean? And he tells them to liberate those who are oppressed, take care of those who are hungry, to act like God. But he said they're not doing that, so they will die like any regular people. Well, who was the assembly of little g gods? Israel means prince with God. It means a chipper, a chip off the bigger block. The people that God had called and instructed by His Word were not living according to it, and now stands one who is doing exactly what God would do, and they mistake him for any old regular guy because he was not religious enough for them. He wasn't careful enough in his wording. Watch these next few words. The Scripture cannot be broken. What about the one whom the Father set apart as His very own and sent Him into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's Son? Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. How many of you ever had parents that said to you, do what I say and not what I do? Right? I wish you'd send my kids to children's church for the next 15 minutes or so. The gospel actually works the opposite way. It says, do not believe me. What I'm saying has no merit unless I'm doing what God says. That is an amazing principle. What if we held our churches to that standard? Do not believe what they say unless you see them doing what God does. That would mean that God would spend a lot of time in a hard pew staring at stained glass. That would mean that God hated almost everybody around Him because He was better than them. That would mean God would own a big, thick Bible that had never really been read. It would mean that God argued endlessly about doctrinal points but almost never actually applied any of the doctrine. If you think I'm too harsh in my treatment of Christianity, understand I am a proud member of Christianity. These things are what I see when I look in the mirror. I'm much more comfortable debating with you about the meaning of a Greek word than I am knee-deep in something that smells like a sewer taking care of somebody that God cares about. But you know what? I think God would prefer the latter and not the former. Mere man. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. How do you know that the Father is in someone? When you see them doing the things that God would do. And you know what no survey of the Old and New Testament could come up without? God's preferential option for the oppressed. Anybody who does not have the power to change their circumstances, anybody that goes without a meal, 
anybody that is limited in their employment opportunities, anybody that is not on the top of this world system, when we do kind things for, it's exactly what Jesus would do. I feel like I've probably had you turn a lot, so I'm going to quote you a few scriptures. Psalm 68.5, I mean if you'd like to check me, you can certainly do that. Psalm 68.5 says, A father to the fatherless and a defender of widows is our God in His dwelling place. That means that God's character, His nature, can be described as somebody who would be a father to people that don't have a good father. Because everybody was brought into the world through two human beings. Even today with our test tubes, that happens, right? Mm -hmm. And God is a father to those who don't have good fathers. And He is a defender of widows and orphans. Well, how does God do that if He doesn't materialize as an old man with a beard or come up in the incarnation of Jesus? How does He do it? He has to use us. This is why we call ourselves the body of Christ. Father to the fatherless. How much theological training do you think it would take to go love and mentor somebody that does not have a good father? How many people do you know that think that they have a good father? Well, that list is short, isn't it? As far as I can tell from counseling, everybody I've ever met, every problem in their life is really their parents' fault. They're not responsible for any of it. Some of you people who have been parents a while, you can understand that, right? How many times did you hear that? I'll never be like you, blah, 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 blah. You know, when I was two, a leaf blew in the window, it landed on my foot, my life's been ruined since, and it's your fault, Dad. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. We're diseased human stock, and the only hope that we have is to get God's nature and character in us. And the way that that happens is when one person gets that in them, and then shares their life, not just their doctrine or some ridiculous Christian witness training program speech. But when you share your life, people begin to see something. And they want to be like that, and they want to do it for other people. A friend came and spoke here named Wade Sutherland. And Leviticus 19, 9-10 says that when you glean your fields, when you go over your fields... You're supposed to take a tenth of everything that you get out of your field. That's the tithe. You bring it into the house of God. He said, but don't glean the whole field. Leave the corners. Leave the corners because God cares about the poor, the alien, the orphan. He cares about those things. So imagine this. How many of you have fields in here? Anybody in here growing a field of something? Legal things, not in your stereo? Nobody in here. So when we see an oh one good when we see an agricultural society like this, you do have to take some kind of step to make this apply to your life because none of you have fields that you're leaving corners of. So if this applied to your life, how would it apply? A field was your source of income. So out of your source of income, when you go through it, certainly bring a tenth into the house of God. But more than that, you need to leave the corners for the aliens, the orphans, and the widows. How many of us can honestly say in our budgets, if that's our field, we have certainly brought the tenth into the house of God, but then the corners of our budget, we have left room for those that God cares about. Because this was commanded to the Israelite people. That, that was convicting to me. Wade Sutherland came here and preached on it. I didn't say it. He did. I'll give you his address. You can write to him about it. 
He said that he realized that he had not left corners in his budget. Instead, he had accounted for every dollar, every cent, and every detail, and there was nothing left to bless other people with. When describing an ideal life, Job is talking in, in the 29th chapter and all the way through the 31st chapter. And again, I don't have time to read it to you and I don't want to bore you. But when describing a perfect life, Job says, man, I miss those days when God was dwelling in my house as an intimate friend. And then when you read what happens after it, he says, and I was breaking the fangs out of the mouth of those who desired to devour the poor. When I was clothing those who needed clothes. He missed those days, he said. The ideal ancient Jewish life was a life in which you were so focused on other people that God was focused on you. Wow. Have we missed something? How many days do we wake up and go, what can I do for someone else today, Lord? But we are very fond of saying, bless me, Johnny, Susie, us four, no more. We are very fond of talking about what we need, what we don't have, how hard our days were, huh? You ever ask somebody how you're doing and we're sorry you did? <laughs> hey man, how you doing? Well, my back hurts. I got a pint of fluid, got a bunion on this toe. I got fired yesterday and you won't believe me. You're like, oh God, help me get away. You ever talk to people that when you're telling your heart's most intimate details, they go, yeah, but anyway, and then pick back up their story. We're inherently selfish human beings. We are inherently self-centered human beings. The purpose of every scripture that was ever written was to change the inclination of our hearts to be more like God, who is selfless in the way that He treats people. He gives mercy where judgment should be due. I think we probably better get to our text. Fair enough? Yeah, Matthew 6. This one I do want you to turn to. Good. Two of you are there. I lost the rest of you. You know, I had been looking for this book and it was hiding in the pulpit. A little bit like God's been looking for people that are hiding in the church. Church people are some of the roughest in the world. I want to go ahead and admit that. We're harder on each other than anybody else would ever be. So if you're scared to go out there and mingle among the lost, you shouldn't be. They're much more accepting. They're kinder. They'll overlook your flaws than the church people ever are. So if you're scared and you're hiding in your Bible groups, closing your door at all holidays, turning off the lights so that you will never see an outsider, I promise you, if you venture out, get outside your monastery, they're not as scary as you might think. Truthfully, most of them realize they need something they don't have. They just don't know where to get it. You ready for Matthew 6? Yes. In Matthew 6, we're going to pick up in uh, the 22nd verse. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. Now, I realize that I'm not what you would call a sophisticant. Uh, there are times that whether it is my educational background or like was pointed out to me today, my dress, uh, 
there are times where I'm lacking in a lot of areas. But having said that, I have read this word a lot. So this should be familiar to me. And yet never anywhere in all of my human experience have I met anybody that said this in casual speech. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. I mean, does that strike you as just immediately, oh, yeah, of course. I mean, if my eyes are good, my whole body will be full of light. Are you a little bit like me that if you take the time to contemplate that, that uh, if anybody said it but Jesus, you would wonder what they were talking about, right? Am I the only one? No. No, that's, that's not such an easy saying. I read a book by uh, Roy Blizzard and David Bivin about the Hebrew roots of Scripture. It was the beginning of a transformation in the way that I thought about the word. See, even though these words came to us in Greek and they are translated here literally, the people who spoke them, and maybe even originally wrote them, were Hebrew. And they had expressions called Hebrew idioms in their, in their daily life. Not all that different than uh, Rebecca, who's getting up leaving now, might say, Hey! Hey, dude, that's cool! Does she mean that something is uh, part of a cow and that it lacks temperature when she says, Hey, dude, that's cool? No. The vernacular of our young people today involves phrases that are not to be interpreted literally. Right? Because they are largely symbolic, or allegorical, or in any way you want to say it, they're colloquialisms is what they are. It is a phrase that cannot be interpreted literally and understood. This is that. It's not to the Greek people, though. It's to the Hebrew people. And when you talk about your eye... Because the Hebrew people see themselves as princes with God, vessels for God to move in and work through, your eyes are supposed to be on what God's eyes are on. It's a euphemism for generosity. If your generosity is good, your whole body or life will be good. If your generosity is good, your whole body will be full of God's presence, life. But if your eyes, your generosity, is bad, your whole body, life, will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? A good eye was considered among the rabbis to be a man who had his eyes focused on the same spot God's eyes were focused. Another way this shows up in the Older Testament is it is the apple of God's eye, the center of His eye. You're not in His peripheral vision. You're in the center of His vision. Let me ask you something today. How is your eye? Are your eyes on the things that God's eyes are on? Because if they are, your whole life will be full of His revelation. It will be full of His power. If they are not, your life has got varying degrees of darkness in it. And it can grow. That's exactly what he's teaching. If you don't believe me, look at the context. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. If you read this without the understanding of what a good eye is, it sounds as if Jesus has developed some personality disorder or has an inability to keep a certain train of thought. Because he talks about, in King James, the singleness of an eye, and then starts talking about money. And they don't seem related at all. However, to the Hebrew people, it's completely related. Because you have a choice. 
You can have your eyes on what you have and what you need and what you wouldn't have if you gave it away. Or you can have your eye on what the other person needs, the good eye. We have a choice today before us. And there's a benefit and a consequence to both. When your eyes are on what God's eyes are on, He will fill your life in every way. When your eyes are on yourself, you are serving money and cannot please Him. Look at the rest of the Scripture. Therefore I tell you, do not worry. Why would you tell somebody that? Because our natural inclination when we think of meeting someone else's needs, whether it's our wife, our neighbor, or somebody on the other side of the ocean, is, but what about me? If I use the money that I set aside for my pedicure to do something for Debbie, what will happen to my pedicure? <laughs> we do it all the time, though, don't we? How many times have we had something that could be used for someone else's benefit and it never crossed our minds? Even if you find money, find 20 bucks outside. If you have not been praying for $20 because you have a specific need, we ought to consider that maybe God brought that into your life so that you could do something with it as His hands and feet. But does it? Our eyes are often not good eyes. We need to correct our eyesight today. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? This is another Hebrew style of teaching. It's called Calvay Comer. It means the light and the heavy. He says, if God takes care of the birds, the light matters. How much more do you think He'll take care of you? Quit worrying. Get your eyes off yourself. Correct your eyesight and help other people. Amazing thing happens if I meet the Callahan's needs and they're not thinking about their needs, then they're meeting the Dang's needs. And if the Dangs aren't thinking about their needs, but they're meeting someone else's, they might be meeting the cooks. And so the world goes round. And you know what we have? A world repairing itself. One that's not based on dog-eat-dog, dog, but a brother that really is his brother's keeper. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? I could keep going with this, and the context remains absolutely the same. We have a choice before us. Are we going to seek first the kingdom and His principles by living like the king? Or are we going to continue to live selfish lives? I'm going to quote to you a few more scriptures because we're going to close and I don't want you to have to read them. In Galatians 5, the 6th verse, it says, The only thing that counts... Boy, that's a pretty narrow view, isn't it? The only thing that counts is faith, which can be translated trust. Your faith, your trust in God, expressing itself in love. You know what that means? If that Scripture is true, and if it's not, we have a bigger problem. You have to decide what Scriptures are and aren't true. Go through it with a black highlighter. If that Scripture is true, that means that when we face the Bema Seed of Christ, when we stand before Him in judgment, what will count is our trust in Him that produced love towards other people in some tangible outward way. I'm not talking about feeling warm and emotional towards them. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Hmm. 
How about Galatians 6, 9? Let us not become weary in doing good, for if we do not give up at the proper time, we will reap a harvest. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to one another, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. The exhortations in the Scripture don't change from Isaiah all the way to the book of Galatians. They don't change from Genesis to Revelation. God wants us to be His hands and feet and treat other people in the manner that He has treated you. It's so easy to say you love God, isn't it? Oh, I love Him. I love Him. I love Him because He first loved me. I love Him. I love Him. I love Him. How does the Bible say you know that you love Him? When you love your fellow man by doing what He said to do. In fact, 1 John 3, 16-19 says this. He loved us and He laid down His life for us that we should lay down our lives. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in such a person? You know what is horrible about that? I've had that scripture in my possession now for more than 18 years. And I talk about the love of God every week. But I pretty often know about people that are in need and have a chance to do something about it, and I don't. So what do we do? Do you take your ball and go home? Do you give up? Do you say, well, what he's requiring of us is that we sell everything and give it to the poor to be perfect. No, I'm not. What I am saying is that our eyesight needs to begin to change. When we go places, when we do things, when we live our daily lives, we don't just need to take care of me and mine. We need to begin to look for what God is looking at. Is there anybody in here that has been praying for help that I can provide? Is there anybody in Walmart today that is yearning and crying out for something that I could give them? A life like this is guaranteed to make your whole body full of light. You know why it's guaranteed? Because the king of all truth said it. We just haven't understood it or done it. Will you join me in asking God to change our eyesight today? A dear sister in this church woke up the other day and put on contacts. They were the contacts that were given her from the ophthalmologist. So she put them on. And when she put them on, she didn't see any better than when she didn't have any in. She could scarcely find her way to the bathroom. She had been given the wrong prescription. Saints, many times religion has given us the wrong prescription. And we don't see any more clearly as the result of having sat under certain teaching for years than we would if we were lost. But today, this message is pretty plain. We need our eyes on what God's eyes are on so that we can see clearly and do His Word, do His will. Stand up to your feet. I don't know how else you would stand. On your hands. To your knees. On your back. George Washington Carver was invited to speak in a world venue, international audience. And the dean of a school bought him a suit. said, you need to wear this. He said, if they want my suit, send it to them. If they want my knowledge, then I'll go, but I'm wearing this. He was wearing overalls. <laughs> <laughs> Why 
why does our world place so much emphasis on the way something looks and so little emphasis on what it does? Saints, our God looks past your outer appearance. He wants to know what you're doing in His name. Let's pray. Mighty God, Lord, we thank You. We thank You for the bitter herbs in Your Word that cause our eyes to water and us to take note of the righteousness that You require. We thank You, Lord, for the sweetness in Your Word that is like honey on our lips, that lights our way and says, wow, we're free to do these things and we can do it without worry. We thank You. You are truly a, a many-sided stone. Though that no matter how often we turn You and look at You in new directions, we're amazed at Your beauty. Lord, we pray that no one here would be overcome with guilt. But Lord God, they would be washed and cleansed that they would take a new direction, never forgetting what they did look like and what You've made them, saints, everyone. Lord, let us be Your hands and feet, living new lives bought by Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.